0: It lies somewhere between the pit of your stomach, your racing heart, and your brain. Somehow trying to keep it all together. It's an area we call the adrenaline zone.
1: Lift off.
0: I'm retired astronaut Dr. Sandra Magnus. And I'm retired Navy
2: fighter pilot Admiral Sandy Winifeld. We're two adrenaline junkies who love spending time with people who are really passionate about pushing their boundaries as far as possible. While most people are content to have a certain amount of security in their lives, successful entrepreneurs have to not only be creative and work hard to turn their ideas into operating businesses, they often have to lay it all on the line to get it done.
0: Tom Newton grew up in Atlanta and started his first paper route when he was eight years old. And after graduating from Georgia Tech, he's been involved in a dizzying array of startups.
2: Along the way, he's accumulated a wealth of interesting stories and lessons learned for those interested in pushing through all the fear and uncertainty and hitting it with a good idea.
0: He's also a serial teacher, generously helping a host of young people follow in his footsteps. We were curious about what makes him tick, and he was kind enough to join us in the Adrenaline Zone to share what he's learned. Many thanks to our sponsor for this episode, Culligan Water. With Culligan's drinking water systems, you can get the ultra-filtered water you need to fuel your high-performance lifestyle right on tap. Learn more at Culligan.com. Tom, welcome to the Adrenaline Zone, and thanks for being with us today.
1: Uh, It's my pleasure, Sandra. It's great to be here, and I I look forward to spending the time with you.
2: Tom, hey, it's good to see you again. Uh, We've interviewed a lot of people who take all kinds of risks. And we've always wanted to talk to somebody who's really sort of risked it all to start up a successful business. And you've done that a bunch of times. So let's start at the beginning. What lit the fire? How did you discover that you were not interested in being a stable Fortune 500 guy, but wanted instead to start businesses from scratch? What what got you going?
1: I guess it all started at a really young age, Sandy. Uh, I come from a family of five boys and one girl. And my dad grew up in the Depression in the Bronx, and he encouraged slash demanded us all to have jobs as kids. So I got my first paper out when I was about seven years old and delivered the paper before school. At about 12 years old, I got my first job. I think it was $1.35 an hour at the local country club. But it was not until I was a student at Georgia Tech that I think I got the bug. I hit the mother load of entrepreneurial pay dirt in those days by converting old Coca-Cola machines into beer machines and placing them, of course, in the fraternity houses on campus. And <laughs> I used to say to Dr. Pettit, I think I was the only Georgia Tech student that paid my tuition with large bags <laughs> of coins. And I really think those early experiences put me on the track to say, hey, this is kind of fun to do it yourself.
0: So entrepreneurship requires a host of skills and traits, which not that many people are good at. But let's talk about one of the most important ones, which is getting an idea in the first place. And perhaps your biggest hit was the Internet Security Solutions, where you and Chris Klaus picked up on the need for cybersecurity way before it became a trend and a ton of companies entered the market. So how did you get that idea and so far ahead of its time? Well,
1: ISS was a really, really interesting uh, story. And and I think it was inspired by the marriage of two very different backgrounds, uh, but two very compatible dreamers, Chris and I. Chris and I were introduced by mutual friends. Our backgrounds were very different. I was a control systems engineer out of Georgia Tech, having gone to work for Rockwell, and I was fascinated by the internet. And Chris was a student at Georgia Tech at the time, and he and his Georgia Tech friends were, let's just say, curious explorers of the early <laughs> internet. And they basically earned bragging rights by posting their tradecraft craft on which systems they could compromise. It was like earning nerd points and street cred with the community of hackers on the internet in the early nineties. And when I met Chris, he and his friends were like building these tools to automatically find vulnerabilities in systems. And they were posting them on the internet for free. And I was inspired by the possibility of connecting the entire world to a common network but knew that unless it was trusted and secure, it could never reach its full potential. So I saw Chris's tools as the foundation of a different kind of control system to manage risk, you know, to basically identify threats and vulnerabilities dynamically. And I thought businesses would pay for this capability if they were using the internet to find out where they were weak. And really, you know, that passion between the two of us led to, two of the earliest pioneering inventions in the security industry, um, where ISS is credited with inventing the first automated vulnerability detection system and the first fully automated intrusion detection system. So sometimes innovation occurs at the edges, and I would definitely say ISS was one of those you know, stories.
0: How much did you have to educate your customers because you were so early in the game?
1: Well, we were smart enough to know that we had to go to the customers that would actually care about this. So, our earliest customers were the DOD and the military, because they were certainly aware of this, and big banks and financial institutions. And I would say for the first two years, those were the only two types of customers we had, with the exception of some telecom customers and so you know a funny story when when I went to raise money for i s s and i can that was a uh hair raising experience to begin with back in nineteen ninety five but the first three venture capitalists I went to said, "What's the internet and i thought boy i'm I'm in the wrong office here, so I have trouble now." <laughs> making sure we focused on those early customers that actually cared about security was really, really important to us. And that's the way we got it going as we, we went after target-rich environments.
2: So, Tom, a little bit of an excursion here, because this conversation really is about you and your approach to entrepreneurship, which is fascinating. But before we kind of get a little bit more into that, you know, this is about risk, right? And the cyber realm is very full of risk. Can you give our listeners a brief sense for where you sort of think cyber risk is right now and how the industry's handling it, you know? And what's the most important thing people out there should be doing to reduce their cyber risk?
1: It's, it's a really good question, Sandy. And, you know, one of the things that drew me to security early on with the internet was that methods and threat actors continue to change. And as the infrastructure changes, the methods and the ways that people are compromising uh, the infrastructure also changes. So whenever you're faced with a situation where everything is changing, it creates a great business opportunity because nothing is static, especially for innovative companies. And if if you look at the threat spectrum, and where the threat spectrum has evolved. You know, it has evolved from simple file-based viruses into very uh, sophisticated, advanced, persistent threats that are funded by very large budgets from nation-states, organized crime organizations, and cartels. So... The challenge here is that security professionals have to be right 100% of the time to manage a fully protected environment. And, you know, the threat actors only have to be right once. So being vigilant against these advanced persistent threats is critical. And in the U.S., we know very well that there are well-funded nation-state actors in China, in Russia, in Iran, in North Korea. And, you know, we monitor these threats both at a national level. And, you know, one of the great things I think our country did under President Bush was created the National Infrastructure Advisory Council, where I was a founding uh, member of that to bring a public-private partnership together um, for information sharing and to protect and assure the resilience of our infrastructure. You know, this is a threat that the government can't really address alone. 85-plus percent of the critical infrastructure is managed by private industry, and therefore a public-private partnership is critical. I would imagine that you would
2: probably agree with uh, if anybody ever came into your office and said, I've got the cybersecurity solution that will handle all of your needs, and you will be secure," you'd probably throw them out of the office.
1: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and in fact, it reminds me, Sandy, of a publication that we published at ISS just to raise the ire of the industry. And it was me holding a silver 45 caliber bullet. And the title of it was The Silver Bullet, and it was some new technology that we were releasing, and it had the desired effect. <laughs> there were detractors everywhere uh, before we got a lot of free press out of that.
2: So everybody's good for something, even if it's a bad example. Is that what
1: you're saying? Say? Exactly. <laughs> Sometimes <laughs> it's a bad example that gets you the most press. There you go. Oh, so I know it, all about that.
0: Yeah, so let's go. Let's go backwards then to getting ISS off the ground, which, as as we've talked about, you know, wasn't particularly easy because you had to educate and, and target. But can you talk a little bit about some of the risks you took in order to to get that company started again, so ahead of its time?
1: Sure, Sandra. I mean, you know, history recognizes ISS as a great success, but it rarely remembers how many times we faced failure or how close we were to shutting the doors. ISS ran out of money long before we had paying customers. I had invested all of my savings, sold my car, had young kids who depended on me, and I was five months behind on my home mortgage payments. And it led me to rock bottom. We were trying to release internet scanner version 2.0. This was in August of 95. And with failure looming, I began to apply for Visa cards and funded the company with cash advances, ultimately growing to, I think, 37 cards fully at their limit before we shipped (laughs) our first product and earned our first substantial order. And I think to this day, I'm afraid to ever apply for a Visa again, but I I took those 37 cards to John Imlay, who was a Georgia Tech grad. He's passed away now, but he's the father of Atlanta technology. And I spread them out like a Vegas dealer on his huge wooden conference room table. And I said, John, I'm going to jail. I've got all these cards. (laughs) The cash from number 37 can't pay the minimum on the 36 prior. You know, I need help. And John gave us $100,000, and that really changed the course of our our company. But there were a lot of risks there. I, um, I had cashed in my wife's 401k without telling her. Oh, I did a number of things that looking back on it was crazy, but we were so passionately convinced that we were on the right track, that common sense <laughs> wasn't something I was relying on at that point. So
2: so I would say two things. One, this sounds like a do not try this at home. Uh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> but the other thing for our listeners is that that sounds kind of seedy, but I'll tell you that Tom Noonan is one of the most compassionate people I've ever met and is very philanthropic and, and has learned all that uh, from his own hard experience.
0: Water is the ultimate health drink. With Culligan's filtration systems, you'll get the superior quality and pure tasting, ultra-refreshing hydration you can count on to power your performance.
2: Culligan's smart reverse osmosis systems take it to the next level, helping you set hydration goals, track how much you're drinking, and even see what contaminants are reduced in your water.
0: That means you're always getting the exceptional water you need to feel truly good inside and out, ready to face the day and whatever challenges it brings. Learn more at Culligan.com.
2: Let me um, ask you, in the process of, of starting up this company, I believe you started the tradition of the infamous Purple Shoe. Can you share with our listeners kind of a G-rated version of that story?
1: Sure, Sandy. Honestly, the only version of the story is G-rated, but it's it's very crazy. Prior to starting ISS, I was being heavily recruited by a large California technology company to be the VP of marketing Um, for their emerging applications business. And the CEO of that company had a particularly crusty reputation and still does. And he was directly involved in courting me for a number of months. And he spent many, many hours invested in getting me to move to California and take this job. And after a long process, and probably some indication from me that I was leaning in heavily, I disappointed them at the 11th hour by telling them I was starting my own company. And almost immediately after that, I received a very crass email from the CEO. And he said, that is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. And he said, if you ever Raise one dollar in that company. He said, I will personally come to Atlanta and drink champagne from a prostitute's shoe. Oh my gosh. He was known for making outlandish claims. And my assistant never forgot that rude email. And on the day we closed our Series A venture capital with Greylock and Kleiner Perkins, she went to the store with another female employee and she said, We were yelling. Down the aisle. Do these look like a hooker shoe to each other? And they ended up getting two purple shoes with a big bow, really high heels. They're the most gaudiest looking things in the world. And she brought those back to the company. And one of our engineers had made some homemade cider. And the whole company drank champagne from that shoe. We took a picture of it and sent it out to California. (laughs) (laughs) So they became they became a symbol of pride in our culture, and they kind of represented the triumph of the human spirit to battle forward despite the odds and the detractors. And over the years, gosh, thousands of employees, customers and partners have drank from those shoes to celebrate our culture. And I mean, one of them sunk to the bottom of the Grand Canal in Amsterdam, we recovered it. One was <laughs> <laughs> ended up in a uh massive public refuse dump in Puerto Rico. We sent a team in, they extracted it. It's been on the Great Wall of China. They've been just about everywhere, but today they're proudly exhibited in my office. How they survived 14 years of that is beyond me. But they're a great reminder that regardless of the detractors, regardless of the naysayers, you know, if you're committed to something, there's always a way to find a way to success.
0: You know, it's it's interesting you mentioned that because to be an entrepreneur requires, as I mentioned earlier, special skills and traits. So clearly determination and commitment is one of them. Can you capture a few others for our listeners? You know, like so many Things in life,
1: it all begins with strong leadership. I mean, the right leadership is critical and has broad implications for the future success of anything. But I think great entrepreneurial leaders are hardwired for meaning and we chase the things that set our souls on fire. I mean, when you believe in something as passionately as a great entrepreneur does, I mean, it sets their soul on fire. And you know, the force of your conviction really causes other people to get motivated and, you know, help you achieve your vision of the future. So I think that passion is the authentic purpose. And, you know, there are all kinds of other skills that you can check the box on. You know, do you have the right competency and experience um, integrity, et cetera. But then there are those intangible attributes that I think are some of the most important, such as leadership skills, loyalty and the ability and capacity to coach and be coached. And so as a entrepreneurial CEO, you have to be a player coach and you're usually the person that puts the coffee on early in the morning and you're the last one to leave at night but when when you love what you're doing it does, it doesn't feel like work at all,
0: so you've started at least ten businesses, so you've gone through this ten times, and all of which have been successful. We, you know we've talked about i s s but you have this remarkable record with all these other businesses, I guess, which is why you have a company called Ten Holdings. <laughs> but are there any other good risk stories or close calls that come out of some of these other startups?
1: Yeah, I think first of all, at my end of the venture spectrum, all these things are white-knuckle rides. And then at this point in my life, I don't know that there are too many hard lessons left for me to learn uh, (laughs) because all of these early-stage, you know, dreams have one foot on the grave and one foot on the banana peel. You know, the journey of these things is the most amazing part. Every time one gets acquired or goes public, or I'm no longer involved with it what you remember is the journey you remember the battles you fought the people you fought them with and the stories that were told um you know I was just thinking back as you, as you asked me this question of the story of the ISSKK IPO so ISSKK was our Japanese subsidiary we became the single largest supplier of network and system security to the Japanese government. Only to be told four years later, when I was a publicly traded company on the NASDAQ, my manager of Japan came to me and said, boss, we got a problem. And I said, what's the problem? And he said, well, we're in violation of a Japanese national security law. They're actually spending 60% of their budget on ISS that was about 40 million dollars at the time and they can't spend any more than 10% of their budget on a foreign supplier of national security interest and i said my god what are we going to do we can't we can we were about a 250 million dollar in revenue company then i thought if i lose 40 million dollars we're in trouble so i flew to japan we met with members of the Liberal Democratic Party that were in the ruling party at the time, and we all ended up at, for three days in a hot tub in Sendai, Japan, in some <laughs> cliff town, to resolve this issue. And of course, as you might imagine, there was lots of sake consumed, and lots of food eaten, and stories told. But in the end, we decided. At their advice, if we took our Japanese office public on the Tokyo Stock Exchange, we would actually be considered a Japanese company. I flew back to Atlanta and told my board, people like Sam Nunn and Dave Strom, seasoned veterans of American industry, that we were going to take our Japanese sales office public and they thought I was crazy. Um, sure enough, on september fourth two thousand one i s s k k went public and we saved our forty million dollars of business but this is this is the type of ingenuity you have to come up with when you're running these businesses or you know you you' you face extinction
2: Wow as time has evolved and and you've been through on this amazing journey of of entrepreneurship, it seems like you've sort of shifted Tom from doing Entrepreneurship yourself to actually supporting it, starting I think, with tech operators, uh, you know how's that transition worked in your own mind, and what makes you happier uh, starting your own project or helping others uh, start theirs?
1: Let's start with the fact that my wife forbade me to start any more companies <laughs> um, so, given that she was my freshman chemistry lab partner at Georgia Tech, you know we've been together a long time. um so my My journey as an investor in innovation and a mentor to entrepreneurs has been incredibly rewarding and fulfilling over the last 10 years, um, ever since I started Tech Operators. And looking back on it, I've funded over 75 early stage companies. I've invested over $250 million of my own money in these ventures and what you quickly realize in this business is how few investors actually have operating experience. You know, it's like a fire chief that's never fought a fire. And so I find this incredibly fulfilling. I I, I work with these young entrepreneurs, and you kind of take for granted what you've learned over the last 30, 35 years building companies. And these incredibly brilliant young people are deep subject matter experts in their domain, but they really have no practical experience in dealing with employment issues, partnership issues, legal issues, compensation issues, budgeting and planning. And so I'm actually having a ball, Sandy, and I'm having as much fun now as I ever have. So I I intend to be doing this for quite a while longer.
0: So it's, it's the give back phase where you help others leverage your learning, right? You live to embrace risk in the air,
2: on the slopes and anywhere your determination takes you. But when it comes to the drinking water that fuels your adventures, You're not looking to take chances
0: with cutting edge filtration that can target contaminants as small as a single atom. Culligan's reverse osmosis filtration systems deliver the next level hydration you need to keep working at peak performance, whatever the day brings. Get started
2: by scheduling your free water test at Culligan.com.
0: So as a, as a business gets bigger, it gets harder and harder to maintain culture. Um, Of course, at some point, Sandy and I have long and storied history with the government, which is like the ultimate bureaucracy. Uh, But how have you handled that in your individual businesses and in your span of control as you've gone from incubator into larger and larger companies? And I've always wondered if there's a specific size, either in revenue or people, where you go from that entrepreneurial, innovative, flexible you know, do what you have to do to grow and be successful into the the bureaucratic mode where the you, you need processes and systems and it stifles that innovation so what's your experience with that?
1: I tell you it's a tough one sandra as as you know I think the age old principles of leadership and culture apply regardless of what you're building or operating, but the culture has to evolve in the i s s example we went from Almost zero revenue drinking out of the purple shoe to $500 million in revenue being public on the NASDAQ and the Tokyo Stock Exchange and ultimately being acquired by ISS. And those purple shoes were still with us because the founding culture evolved and it grew up. You know, I think some of the age-old principles of working as a team and leaning on one another for support, putting customers' interests first, focusing on solutions and how to improve as opposed to dwelling on obstacles or reasons why you can't get done, all those are founding tenets of great culture. But, you know, ISS probably gave me the best example of how a culture had to evolve and we grew up as a company and i think we did a good job of it without becoming bureaucratic when we got to IBM it was very very clear to me you know how different that culture was because at ISS we were always pursuing opportunities which meant we were pursuing risk and when we got to IBM All of the executives told me we are stewards of this great brand and we make it very, very difficult to put that brand at risk. And so it was a very different cultural axiom for me um, to see the stark contrast between two publicly traded companies where investors, where we were regulated by the same regulatory bodies, but the difference in what a 120-year-old bureaucracy is like, as opposed to a 15-year-old bureaucracy.
2: I was just going to say, as you, were, as you were answering that question, it made me think of one of my favorite literary quotes from a, a classic American author named Paul Horgan. Who, he said, you know the great secret. It's to keep alive the child inside alongside the man growing up. And it almost sounds like that's exactly the approach you took culturally to your companies.
1: That is exactly the approach. And some days it was hard, but, you know, some of the early shenanigans that occurs in companies, I mean, you know, I I, I spent three days trying to get a handful of my engineers out of jail um, one <laughs> week and their wives. Were- I won't ask why they were in jail. <laughs> well, they, they pulled a practical stint, cool in the gang, the performer, was performing at the Atlanta Tabernacle for the user group of our biggest competitor, McAfee, or Network Associates. And these engineers had snuck backstage before the event (laughs) and paid cool $500 to wear a T-shirt that said, ISS protects my network. And he had a sticker (laughs) on his pants, and they replaced the banner that was going to drop behind him it said, welcome uh, McAfee customers. It said, welcome ISS customers. (sighs) And so Cool, these guys had had a few drinks and they were hiding behind the stage. And Cool and the gang came busting out onto the stage for this 2000 event user group customer celebration for our biggest competitor. And the ISS banner fell down, came down behind them and Cool hit the stage with an ISS t-shirt. Well, at that point they bolted out the back. And one of them did try to outrun a police on a Harley motorcycle. It didn't work. And I asked his wife, what was he thinking? She said, Well, he did run track in in high school. I said, Well, he wasn't gonna outrun the Harley Davidson.
0: Who says engineers aren't fun people? Oh, my
1: exactly. goodness. <laughs> no, I mean, you know, you just the experiences you have are just you know, and the stories you remember are just classic. But you have to grow up, you know, and and, you know, you have to keep that fire burning alive. But at the same time, the company's got to grow and mature because the risks are much higher.
0: Yeah so but you grow but you don't get complacent and you still embrace risk appropriately that sounds like that's the key actually exactly you talked earlier about the fact that you're in the the phase of your life where you're mentoring which i i find extremely fun so what drives you to do that, to teach young people and college students about entrepreneurship? And more importantly, how do you go about doing, because clearly you, you've talked about how much fun you're having, but how do you go about transferring your knowledge to these students?
1: Yeah, I guess the reason I do it is because I really enjoy it. I mean, I, I actually find fulfillment in working with these young people. And, you know, there's a, there's an old saying that if, if, you know in a corporation if people aren't coming to you to ask for advice or your opinion you're probably not very important so i think in some <laughs> in some ways it uh, it soothes my ego every day to know that young people are still coming to me and i'm not a washed up old fart but i teach a class a few times a year in the georgia tech school of management about entrepreneurship and i think all great teachers are storytellers so My lessons are all taught by talking about, you know, real life stories, real life experiences, real life challenges, um, real life opportunities that I've been faced with and how I solved them. It's kind of like a living case study of example after example. And, And I think people learn best through stories. And so my method and my approach is to create thematic stories about challenges, whether it's, how do you get to early product market fit? Or how do you iterate to build the right go-to-market motion or the right go-to-market structure? You know, how do you think about organizational strategy as your company evolves and grows and scales? I mean, these are all real life lessons that I've experienced not once, not twice, but many times. And you know, the things I don't think you're going to get in a book or learn in a, you know, in a classroom environment from someone who hasn't experienced it.
0: But, you know, it's interesting. I, I noticed at Georgia Tech that there's a whole program on entrepreneurship that the students can engage with that didn't exist, for example, when I was a student. So there seems to be more formal training available in general for students.
1: Very much so. Very much so. And, and you know, to that point, Chris Klaus, my business partner in ISS and, and my very good friend to this day, spent an enormous amount of effort over the last 10 years to build CreateX, which is a program for Georgia Tech students to actually experience an entrepreneurial venture and, and
0: compete for a prize. It's hugely popular.
2: And a lot of other, and um, particularly engineering schools, are doing the, the exact same thing. And so it's good that our alma mater is on board with that program. You know, you have, over your long career, developed a really good broad and deep view of the sort of innovation landscape. So what do you see as the next sort of tech wave that young entrepreneurs should be thinking about on the macro sense? You know, where is this whole thing going? Is it machine learning, artificial intelligence, that sort of thing? Or, or I mean, there's a host of of possibilities out there. Uh, where do you see the most promise?
1: The innovation landscape is is going to continue to change, but I think there are some major opportunities where innovation is going to have an impact over the next you know, 15 to 20 years. I mean, clearly energy and finding alternative energy that's clean, whether it's a combination of nuclear, solar, wind, wave, all the above, or something we haven't even thought of yet today. You know, we'll continue to use the tools, the algorithmic tools of artificial intelligence and uh, machine learning and all of these capabilities will continue to improve our ability to improve the science. But if you, you know, if you look at some of the major opportunities, it's, it's zero carbon emission flight, we aspire to that today, but we're not there battery technology. We're absolutely destroying the surface of the earth and the mining of the heavy metals that are required to store energy. And yet, you know, we know we have to solve that problem. Somehow we can't destroy our atmosphere um, with carbon. And yet at the same time, we shouldn't be destroying the crust of our earth with the mining of these heavy metals. Today, I think it's estimated that if every single automobile, that there's enough heavy metals in the surface of the earth to actually power 10% of the world's automobiles. So, you know, we're not there yet. So the innovations around this, I think there's a lot of innovation around healthcare, using the science, artificial intelligence, and algorithmic intelligence in, in that area. And then in security, you know, in my own backyard, I think we will continually evolve our methods and our ability to protect and defend a more resilient infrastructure because the bad guys are not going away. Whether they're nation state actors prosecuting political aims or whether they're cabals or mafias, you know, we've got to protect and defend and maintain the resilience of this infrastructure that we're all so dependent on.
2: Mm-hmm. So, Tom, we're we're out of time. And uh, I mentioned at the very top of this show that, uh, you know, we've interviewed a lot of people who've taken physical risks and that sort of thing. We've always wanted to, to have somebody who sort of put it all out there uh, intellectually, uh, financially and the like. And this has been a terrific discussion that I think is going to be inspiring to any anyone, uh, particularly young people who, Hear about it; it'll get them excited that you know they can do this too, as long as they have the kind of perseverance that you demonstrated. And thanks also for everything you're doing to help young people. A lot of people don't do that; they they do well, but they don't give back. And you're clearly doing that.
1: Well, I, you know, in the last Georgia Tech class I had, they were questioning me about failure, and I said, "Look, failures literally part of the equation of success." I said, "It isn't failure." unless you've thrown the towel in, if you're still fighting, if you're still trying to find a way. And I, you know, I told him, I have always found that there's a way out. Sometimes it's unconventional. Sometimes it's scary. But if you keep believing, you'll find a way out. And, you know, failures taught me things about myself that I could have learned in no other way. And certainly that i you know wouldn't have been able to learn in some risk averse corporation or or some uh you know classroom setting so i think the kids are listening and i think they're benefiting and i'm i'm certainly enjoying it so what the heck it works for everyone
2: <laughs> well you're you're one of the lucky few who gets to to do something that they absolutely love love doing and and a reminder to me of the old saying that you know success comes just after the point where most people quit so thanks so much for being a guest. Yeah. I look forward to seeing thank you again you. Uh, soon.
1: Absolutely. I'm, l- I'm looking forward to our February joint. So I'll, I'll see you then. And um, thank you for taking the time to interview me.
2: Many happy returns with your brand new granddaughter.
0: Yeah, thanks a lot, Tom. That was Serial Entrepreneur Tom Noonan speaking to us from Atlanta, Georgia. I'm Sandra Magnus. And I'm Sandy Winnefeld.
2: Thanks again to Culligan Water for sponsoring this episode. Your high-performance lifestyle deserves high-performance water. Learn more at Culligan.com.
0: And check us out on social media, including a short video of our interview with Tom on TikTok. Our handle is very simple, at The Adrenaline Zone.